Hi, I'm Katie Burke, Associate Editor at American Scientist Magazine. I recently sat down with biologist Michael Eisen, who is also one of the founders of the open access publisher Public Library of Science, or PLOS. We got to talking about how the idea for PLOS started, and he told me about a day when he and his postdoc advisor at the time, Pat Brown, who is also a co-founder of PLOS, discovered that the scientific community did not own their own literature. Michael and Pat had wanted to put a bunch of the scientific literature into one public database to make it easier to analyze. When they went to the library and asked the librarian to put all the scientific journal articles in the library on their hard drive, he told them it wasn't allowed, because they belonged to the publishers. This was the fateful moment when PLOS and the open access movement began. Here's Michael telling the story. It just never occurred to me that the scientific literature belong to anybody but the scientific community and the public. When you publish a paper in a journal, you give your copyright to the journal, and when you do that, you're giving the right to control the literature over to the publishers, and more importantly, you're creating a system in which the scientific literature is serving the interests of the publishers and not the research community or the public. This really, really pissed off my advisor, Pat Brown, and he began to plot in his head ways of changing this system. We knew that the physicists were way ahead of the biologists. Physicists were already posting all of their papers online in this archive server. Initially, we thought, well, we'll just do the same thing for biology. We'll set up a computer somewhere in our lab, and we'll just make a place where everybody can put all their papers, and we'll go back to our business. We were met with a surprising amount of skepticism. Again, I'd never thought anything about scientific publishing as anything other than just sort of what you did. It wasn't a system, it was just there. As soon as you start to talk about changing the system, we began to realize how powerful, uh, not just the publishers, but the whole idea of the journal system is in people's minds and how deeply embedded it is into the fabric of science and science careers. Pat began to press for systematic changes in the whole way science publishing works. Sponsored by the NIH, they would be immediately available and visible to everybody, completely for free. They would then get peer-reviewed by societies and other editorial boards who had an interest in overseeing the literature in their fields, but the works would remain in this one place. The problem we had been trying to solve would have been eliminated. This was met with incredible opposition, in particular from publishers who immediately cried, government takeover of our business. There really wasn't a lot of support from scientists either who would say, well, how am I going to build my career if I don't have a nature paper. This is crazy. You're getting rid of peer review. It was very, very hard to convince anybody that this was a good idea. Congress didn't think it was a particularly good idea, or some people in Congress. And so the plan was modified, where the NIH would have essentially been the publisher, or at least an archiver of the scientific literature, to a system where the NIH set up an outlet of PubMed, which came to be called PubMed Central, where journals that wanted to could make their works freely available, and they provide the infrastructure for doing it. We thought, okay, we're going to create sort of a division in the world between the publishers who want to serve the scientific community and will participate in this system, and the bad publishers who just want to make money and won't participate in this. But it turned out that most of the publishers were in that second category. They didn't want to participate. Very, very few did. We thought that the scientific community would not like this, and so we organized open letter, which was kind of a threatened boycott of journals that didn't participate in the system. And this is where we first sort of coined the idea of a public library of science. People who signed it were basically calling for the creation of a public library of science that would have the full contents of every scientific paper ever published freely available for people to read. 
something like 30,000 people signed on to this open letter pledging that they wouldn't review for or participate in the publishing system as it exists. No publishers responded to the open letter. And we were left in a situation where we thought the system was completely broken, that it was no longer serving the interests of scientists. But it was clear by this point, the scientific community was afraid to change things, and the publishers certainly weren't going to do it. We decided we just had to do it ourselves. Pat, Harold, and I thought through how we'd want to go about changing the publishing world, realizing that the reason that the journals were so unwilling to change things was that they make a ton of money by selling subscriptions. The model is one in which scientists do all the work, the work is funded largely by the public, the scientists write the paper, they then send it to a journal, and the journal takes control over that product and sells it back to the scientists. It's an insane system in which you know we spend something like $10 billion a year to pay publishers to lock our papers behind paywalls. We set out to change that by introducing an alternative economic model. And the idea for the Public Library of Science as a publisher now was to introduce to the world a uh, alternative way of funding scientific journals that would not have the same perverse incentives that were present in the current system, and in particular would allow for the immediate free distribution of everything that we publish, free distribution and, and use. We got a grant from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation to launch these publishers. Its mission was to convince people that the current system was broken and it would give them a tangible alternative to participating in the current publishing world that would do the things they wanted publishers to do, but wouldn't do the things that we thought were destructive. The most important thing to do would be to, to create a high-tier journal that looked a lot like Science and Nature and Cell, the journals that people were so enamored of. But that's how PLOS was born. PLOS as a publisher has been successful. We've survived for over a decade. Our journals are well-known. We're a profitable, financially stable organization. One of our journals, PLOS One, is now the biggest journal in the world. PLOS was successful in showing people that subscription-based publishing is bad. I think we've convinced people, more or less, that primary research journals that use subscriptions as their way of funding themselves, it's a bad idea. It's not the best thing for the scientific community. And you see all sorts of evidence that that attitude is changing. We are still in a world where people think a science or nature paper is the capstone of their career. Many of the people at PLOS now realize that fixing science publishing was going to be harder and a longer haul than just changing the economics and that there's now a whole other realm of problems that have to do with the way in which we assess people's work, the way in which we assess people's careers, the way in which we put journals into, you know, put papers into bins and so forth. Open access publishing today covers about 10% of the published biomedical literature. It's growing. The success of PLOS One, which is PLOS's journal that it's sort of an unjournal in the sense that its goal is simply to publish science that's real science, that passes muster of peer review, but makes no effort to sort papers based on their importance or their impact or their, or, or their audience. We're publishing papers because they're good science, and that's it. PLOS One, which at the time it was introduced, was viewed as a radical concept. It publishes in excess of 30,000 articles a year. The biggest thing in open access publishing today is that not only that PLOS has defied everybody's predictions and turned into a, 
a successful business, but it's become so successful that every player in the industry is copying it. That is really what we wanted. We wanted to show people a model of how you can run a journal in a completely different way using a completely different business model. While it's still only 10% of the literature, the fact that everybody has open access imprints, everybody is recognizing that they can cover their bottom line just as well with an open access journal as they can with subscription journals, and at least in some cases, you're about to see a big phase shift into open access publishing. Our goal from the beginning was to make science publishing work as effectively as possible for the science community and the public. What's left to do? What are the big problems? One of the biggest, to me, and most obvious ones is that it still takes an incredibly long time to publish papers. The typical paper in biomedicine goes about nine months from the time it's submitted to the time it's published, and many take a lot longer. That's nine months in which people who could be benefiting from reading the paper, whose work could be advanced by having access to it, are not able to do so. If you believe in science, if you actually believe that the scientific progress is a real thing and that it's fueled by publishing your results, then you have to think that delaying the publication of your results for nine months is a bad thing for science. When scientists are ready to share their papers, they should be sharing them instantly. Why don't they do that? They don't do that because the system of peer review is still viewed as critical for building people's careers. If you had to point to any real problem in the scientific community, it's our belief in pre-publication peer review, the idea that every paper has to be scrutinized before it's visible, not just to the public, but before it's visible to other scientists. It has to be scrutinized by two or three reviewers, go through a system of evaluation and change before you reach some finished product. It's really, really ineffective at doing what it purports to do. The whole system exists because we think that by putting papers through this kind of scrutiny, what emerges at the other end is a paper that is accurate and can be believed. So one of the things it purports to do is to filter out good science from bad. And the other thing it purports to do is to identify works of particular impact and importance. This whole like hierarchy of careers and things in science is built on the notion that we can evaluate what papers are important and who's doing good science at the time a paper is published. We have a whole scientific system that's premised on the idea that we're going to reward the people who get their papers into the highest ranking journals because we assume that those people are the ones who are doing the best science. We have built a system of evaluating papers that is slow, does a bad job of figuring out which papers are right and which papers are wrong, does a bad job of figuring out who's doing the most important science and whose science you should pay attention to and which scientists you should pay attention to. And what's more, it renders any other system that tries to, to do things in a different way ineffective. We should have a system in which papers are published instantaneously, in which they're evaluated in both an organized and disorganized way. We should have an organized system for evaluating papers both when they're published and for as long as they remain useful to the scientific community. And we should invite the broader scientific community and even in the public into the process of evaluating science to take advantage of the fact that every time someone reads a paper, they're going to have useful information to give back to the authors, to potential future readers, and to the community. It's not hard to envision what a, such a system would look like. 
what's hard and what's going to be hard is convincing scientists to abandon the current system. A nature paper still remains an incredibly seductive thing for most scientists. We have to create a system that's better, that is more effective at doing everything people care about, and which people can use in the same kind of ways they want to use it today to say, I'm doing good science, this person's doing good science, and so forth. Archive has the right idea. When you have an idea, when you have a paper, you just put it out there for people to see. If people are interested in it and they read it and they comment on it, papers get updated, they get changed, ideas flow back and forth between scientists and their colleagues or, or other people are reading their papers. It's all free. Anybody can go access this, you can read it, you can download the papers, you can do anything you want to with them. I produced this Pizza Lunch podcast in collaboration with American Scientist web managing editor Katie Lee Corder. American Scientist magazine is published by Sigma Psi, the Scientific Research Society. The music is Spot by Ardent Octopus, courtesy of Medios Musicali.